0: Hello, and welcome to the Project Good Podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good Podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For December, we're focusing on our organization of the year, Brilliant Detroit. During 2020, when the world began to change forever, no greater area in life was brought to the forefront than the outlook for future generations. In-person schooling was no longer available and parents had to step up into additional roles at home. Some students fell behind due to lack of access to internet and school lunches. For parents with infants and toddlers, childcare was either unavailable or too expensive. Families all over the United States in many communities felt isolated and unsure how to move forward to ensure success for their children. One organization that existed years before the pandemic had already seen the future for the next generation and took charge by creating an organization, Brilliant Detroit, dedicated to building kids' successful families and neighborhoods in high-need areas in Detroit, The organization has a special connection within the communities it works with because they become intimately involved by becoming part of the residential neighborhood. This type of involvement has helped families who are part of their programs thrive. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Maria Montoya, who is the strategic communications and systems director at Brilliant Detroit, dedicated to working with the organization to help families be school ready, healthy, and stable. Let's get into the interview. Brilliant Detroit, which is an an, art organization of the year, is dedicated to building kids' success families and neighborhoods where families with children from zero to eight have what they need to be school-ready, healthy, and stable. The organization provides proven programming and support year-round out of brilliant Detroit homes in high-need neighborhoods. The organization is revolutionizing what it means to be a community in today's world. Welcome, Maria.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having us and thank you so much for this honor. Yes,
0: thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to um, learn more about Brilliant Detroit today and uh, thank you for being our organization of the year. Um, So I always like to ask uh, everyone that I interview a question before uh, we jump into the questions. Uh, So uh, uh, how did you start to get involved with Brilliant Detroit?
1: Um, I think the magic of Brilliant is it's this space that's just so welcoming of folks as you are. Um, And we like to say it's the orange door where that magic exists. So every one of our hubs... Um, we are kind of famous for painting it orange, um, and that is our brilliant Detroit orange door. And once you come through there, it's just this, you know, kind of, this is your home. Um, no matter which hub you may land in, we currently have 18, um, we're working toward 24 by 2024. Um, it's just like a very family atmosphere. And I moved here from another state. My husband was born and raised here in Michigan, um, and I happened upon, you know, Brilliant Detroit's um, Brightmoor Hub, and it was just a really awesome place for me and my children to to feel like we were accepted, to feel like we could just have come and be a part of community dinners. And um, was the first time in a long time that I, I that I really felt like, okay, we're gonna be okay. There's friends here. There's people here um and i had met the founder previous um to to visiting on the visiting the hub on my own Um, but i had just happened upon an activity a community dinner and took my kids and it just was really magical experience for us um having moved here and not had that kind of um, friend base, especially friends with children. So I had a lot of friends who didn't have children yet, or friends whose children had already grown and moved on. Um, so it was really a magical space that I, you know, discovered, you know, as a partner to the founder. Um, Cindy Eggleton had met her in meetings, but then as a parent, it was a a really different experience to to, to attend an event and attend that event with my children and feel like, you know, the warmth and the love that exists in each of the hubs.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, That's, uh, so you just instantly, it seems, um, I guess, uh,
1: felt community the minute that you uh, walked in. Yeah, just so welcoming. Um it, you know, a lot of people are confused by our model because it actually is a house. Um the house is selected by um neighbors and community who approach Billy in Detroit and say, hey, we've heard about this. We want it for our neighborhood. Um, And there's really a process that we have to go through and pick a house that's been abandoned or that is currently available in the city's land bank of houses um, to secure that house and remodel it so that it can serve as the the heart of activities and programs for for any family in that neighborhood that has an infant to an eight-year-old. And so we don't take the house and take out the living room and the, you know, dining room and all those things, the house really gets remodeled with those things put back into it and programming, you know, really, you know, exists in that kind of family fun way. There, you know, there are some basements and use in houses. Um, a lot of the kitchens get used for meetings and, um, you know, activities and trainings that the families want to take part in. And so it really is this kind of, you know, house environment where you're welcome in. And people, I remember people, every every inch of the couch was covered. Every inch of the floor was covered. And, you know, people were sitting and eating and, you know, they had never seen us before, but they really welcomed, you know, all three of my children in and said, grab yourself a plate, sit down wherever you can find a space or, wow. you know, go play. And, you know, that, and that environment you don't always feel, um, even in public spaces. And that's one thing I like to share with folks, you know, Everybody always says, you know, in our libraries and our schools and all these things, there's these, you know, public access to things there. And there is a lot of public access here, I think, in across the United States. But what is that feeling that you have um, and what kind of energy does a family experience when they walk into those spaces? And I think that's a really, you know, um, magic sauce of Brilliant Detroit. Okay. Wow
0: um it you know uh you start to bring back you know, well you know i i didn't obviously live in this the era of the like uh you know 50s or something like that but it kind of brought that kind of thought in my head of like you know uh, communities um uh i guess uh to start kind of uh, diving into a little bit of how brilliant uh, detroit came to be I think we uh for people who have maybe never been to Michigan and definitely maybe not Detroit kind of understand the area of Detroit. I know that you are uh somebody that had moved there but is married to somebody who is uh, a Detroit native. Um so kind of understanding I guess what is going on in Detroit um will probably help people to understand why uh brilliant Detroit needed to uh come to be I guess.
1: Um yeah. so Definitely. I guess I, I, you know, I, and, and I, I know
0: one of the, uh, just before you jump in, and I know one of the things is hard because, uh, you know, um, we just, of course, have uh, been going through this like pandemic thing. So I'm sure every area has changed a little bit. But um, in general, I guess, uh, to give us kind of an overview of uh, what's the makeup of Detroit like.
1: Yeah. So I, I always describe to folks that, I mean, it is just a really expansive city. Um, I think, you know, compared to most cities um, where you can really get around in and about the city, I would say in 20 to 30 minutes, um, I would say this: the, the depth and the span of Detroit and how many communities exist within the city and even other cities that exist within the city um, is just really so expansive. Um, and then you have 50% of our children who are under five or, you know, still living, you know, in poverty, many of the neighborhoods, um, you have just this really strong, flourishing neighborhood in this community um, that has existed for a long time. But there will be pockets um, where you ha- you will see blight. There will be pockets where you no longer see services or, you know, access to usable grocery stores or um, you might have childcare and schools that have actually closed up and been boarded up, but there are still, you know, very much an active community living there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's this idea that everybody's kind of abandoned the city. If you often in the community work, we talk about how um, mm-hmm. there is this um, coverage of Detroit, that it's this kind of abandoned city and, you know, and that's not really the case at all. There's, always, you know, a lot of stories about how downtown is growing. But um, I think one of the most vibrant things about the city is that you have so many very unique neighborhoods, um, where you have generations of families who either have bought and purchased homes, you know, alongside each other, or they've rented for years, in probably, you know, a two to three kind of block radius of each other. Um, And so I, I think that you know the city is very much full, and the city very much has more than a hundred thousand kids. You know who are attending K twelve, um, but then in addition to that, um, you know we know there are thousands of youngsters um, who are also living, and that is really our focus: was how do we get to the children from the belly to eight years old before they're generally activated into some school type program. And that's where the idea of the the neighbor, neighborhood-based hubs really came. How do you bring quality programming and structured activities to the neighborhood instead of consistently putting the burden on families to seek out things outside of the neighborhood? Because as expansive as Detroit is, um, With Detroit winter and all the complexities that exist as far as maintaining and keeping highways functioning, um, it is really hard transportation wise for a lot of families to get out and about, um, given that there isn't, you know, uh, I would say the most consistent bus service at this point, Um, we definitely have, you know, I think expanded and seen things grow under Mayor Duggan. But I think that, you know, for a lot of families transportation, particularly if they have a lot of little ones, is harder. And so the idea behind Brilliant Detroit is, you know, how do we create that that community based support year round in the neighborhoods and so we don't close in the summer we don't close you know up for every holiday and um you know when kids are out of school we are generally trying to provide programs and activities and and i think another thing that's really special about this is um you know Detroit has had a lot of folks dropping in and out and trying to say, okay, here's a solution, you know, that could help Detroit get back on its feed. Um, And I think that's definitely the opposite of of where we're coming from as an organization. We're really working with communities to say what it is, what is it that you think the solutions are? Um, What are the activities? What are the programs that you would like to see for your family? Um, because we really believe that, you know, the solutionaries in this are are, are the folks who are actually living in the neighborhoods um, and know their neighborhoods and their children best.
0: Yes, um, you bring up a, a, a lot of good points in like, um, you know, when even when I was doing research or, of course, you know, talking to uh, people who have, uh, you know, went to Detroit and left Detroit, Um, Yes, I guess uh, what I see from a media standpoint and um, what I hear, of course, is that, you know, uh, Detroit seems like an abandoned city. Um, But I also know that there is um, this whole movement for gentrification um, in in Detroit into kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, bring the city back to life, um, but differently. Um, so you bring up a, a really good point that I think a lot of people are not aware of, or they don't think about. I guess we could, we should say, is that that there are people there that are still very much part of the community. And then I was surprised, you know, um, even though uh, you know, uh, I guess it's maybe just a, a push for the media or something like that, um, that uh, the population is still quite large um, in the in the city. Um, and that, uh, the makeup of the city, um, from what I was, uh, finding statistically has a lot of, um, uh, minorities to it. And, um, I guess, uh, do all those things that you have found, I guess, are, uh, have probably greatly impacted your, your programming. Um, and so when you are, uh, when this, uh, when the, I don't know if you were, um, there at the beginning or close to the beginning. But um I guess what brought the idea um of Brilliant Detroit together? Um obviously I know that there was a need, but what I guess was the, the main trigger?
1: Um I think often like if you if you hear our founder talk about um you know the ideation of Brilliant Detroit, she often called it crazy and wild. Um but her and our co-founders um Really, were coming at it from they had been a part of many initiatives. So Cindy Eggleton, who's a co-founder, um, you know, really had worked in, phil- in philanthropic efforts for many years. Um, she had run a nonprofit, and then she had also worked for um, United Way as a program officer, you know, overseeing millions in, in grants that were you know being allocated throughout the city. And she really talked about like this idea. there was always something new coming about and that solution was okay let's new let's try this Um, but not not always evidence-based and I think that is something you hear you know her definitely speak to our staff a lot about um, is the fact that you know we will try what our our neighbors and our community folks want us to try Um, but also when it comes to literacy programming and those supports that we're going to deliver for children that are you know, based in, you know, development and growth, that brain growth, we're really going to lean hard on partners and programs that are evidence-based. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that folks have wanted to try in education over the last, I'd say, 15 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to literacy and brain development and early talk, Um, The programs that are core programming and activities that exist at all of our hubs, you know, really are evidence-based and and creating this model, um, you know, that at the center is a a relationship with the the community hub and the trust between the parents, the children, and that staff at that hub, um, I think one of the things we always uplift is, not only do we build out the hub with the community, but the community also staffs the hub. Um, It is very um, important to our mission that, you know, each of the staff members that we select to work within the hub, um, the goal is to try and get somebody from the neighborhood Um, because we think the fidelity of delivering those programs, even if they, you know, are evidence-based, you know, the, the, the key and the magic is so often that trust and that relationship building, someone being able to call and say, look, we're having a really hard time today. We can't get there for tutoring, you know, and being able to share with somebody they trust, like what's happening in that family dynamic, um, You know, so that that person can help them overcome that barrier, or they can say, "Hey, let's reschedule. Let's do that later in the week, or let's let's deal with whatever you have in front of you right now, and then we'll get back to that tutoring or that programming, you know, when it's more feasible for you and your family." Um, But I think there's, you know, and I've experienced this myself. I worked in school (laughs) education reform, and I, I used to cover children and families as a reporter. And it's just you know there's so many things that you you see folks try and you know it'll be tried for a year. it might be tried for as little as six months um, but really the key with brilliant programming is how do you deliver things that have you know really already shown that they can make an impact and then how do you deliver those in a way that's you know really has a community based staff at its center? Um, So that your families know if it's not working for them, we can also have the conversation about, hey, this isn't working um, and evaluate like if we need to bring in something else. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you brought up a a good point of, you know, right now, I think um, the pandemic really highlighted um, the holes that we have in the U.S. um, with our education system. Um, And one of the things is, uh, like you mentioned before, that you uh, had already been part of um, uh, the educational system um, in your own personal career, um, that uh, trying new things or things that are, um, I guess, uh, uh, deviate from what we, uh, I guess, uh, the the typical way that we think about education in the U.S., um, always kind of uh, raise a flag. Um, and so one of the things that I uh, looked at in your organization and I was thinking because, of course, during the pandemic, the biggest thing was obviously the schools were closed. Um, and then a lot of parents uh, not having maybe an educational background or not knowing where to start or help their uh, their kids or they had to go to work, of course, um, or, or they're working from home um, of how to kind of, you know, um, manage all of this. I think a lot of parents had like a. I guess for lack of better terms, a meltdown (laughs) in their own homes. Like, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm already like, you know, a mom, I have a a job and now I got to be a teacher and now I got to like, you know, do my regular, you know, daily, like just life. And I think a lot of people were having meltdowns (laughs) to say that that's what I call it. Just like, you know, meltdowns um, in their homes. And so um, since you already had kind of this program how did you or or how are you uh, uh, tackling like this new virtual learning environment? Because I'm not sure if, um, you know, I know different areas have uh, went to kind of hybrid um, where they're still at home and then they go in some days or uh, maybe they went fully back. But then if somebody has like, you know, a COVID um, outbreak, then everybody's back at home again. So since you guys were already kind of in this, uh, what I'm calling kind of a, a future model of education, um, how did you tackle that during like the, the pandemic and this and how are you doing that in this like virtual learning um, time?
1: I think definitely um, pivoted and, and pivoted really fast, I think to the credit of, you know, the brilliant Detroit board, the brilliant Detroit leadership, um, you know, there was a pivot to, to virtual um, and how to deliver programs virtual, um, but also a, a lot of thought really put into how do we connect with families in the safest way to get them also the things that they need. And so... You know, our goal in a typical time period pre COVID was, you know, delivering literacy programs, you know, doing development programs, you know, for infants and our toddlers and getting moms together, um, getting grandparents together for exercise and health and nutrition things that were all in person and really dependent upon those interpersonal relationships. Um, but I think that because we had those relationships and we had the trust, you know, what Brilliant really saw during COVID was an immediate ask of the of the families to say, like, we you know, we don't know what to do for these other things. I think there was, of course, the childcare and the school issues with those closures, um, but our team immediately pivoted to start distributing food boxes, to distribute learn at home kits, um, to sign families up for emergency Wi Fi um, and low cost, you know, internet, and to distribute devices, tablets, and Chromebooks to families, books, <laughs> um, you know, in the first weeks we had families that didn't have formula and enough diapers Mm -hmm. So how do we create safe drive-by activities um, so that families could access those things from the hubs? But then once they had the devices and the ability to access Wi-Fi, how do we then also just create the space to have conversations? Um, Because I think that, you know, we talk about there's a privilege and being able to kind of break down and have a crisis. Um, I know that, you know, I was amongst the families who had that privilege of being able to work from home, have my children at home. I had a partner who was at home. And so there was a lot of crashing that happened in the, you know, two and a half years. But, you know, I think what our families experienced was a lot different Um because they didn't have some of those tools. Um, Our schools didn't immediately hand out devices. Um, It took a lot of community organizing and um, some philanthropic partners and folks coming together to make sure that eventually that happened. Um, But I would say that a lot of the nonprofits leaned in to, to really get materials and resources to families kind of in that gap and I'd say, Um, our founder really talks about, you know, we did deliver programming and we did eventually see many of the things that we had in person go online and, you know, we're able to get some of the tutoring happening, but what was more important was we were also just to create a space for people to talk and to connect, you know, we couldn't hug, we couldn't sit on the porch together in that same way. We couldn't have those community dinners. Um, so I think really important part of that virtual connection was like being able to see each other, being able to let the children, you know, just talk without an agenda. Um, And so those relationships and that trust, I think that really played out virtually um, in that way. And still to this day, if you get the families online, it may take, you know, probably 15, 20 minutes to get everybody, you know, grouped because they really, that connection what was so needed and and I say particularly for Detroit because um I think there are several places in the country that you know remained hot spots for COVID long after other folks were you know starting to go back to you know a post-COVID normal we call it Mm -hmm. Um, but you know our families are still experiencing a lot of loss um and we experienced loss really early on, and so I think that was also important to to create space for families to say, "Yes, we're here to help you with learning. We're here to help you figure out, you know, that crazy second grade curriculum <laughs> <laughs> nobody understands." Um, but we're also here to talk about the fact that, like, we're losing friends and we're losing family, and our kids and our participants really lost a lot of people in the last three years.
0: Yes, um, you know, you, you bring up, uh, I think, one of the, the biggest points that a lot of um, maybe organizations or even uh, people miss is that, okay, yes, we all, of course, had to go into uh, crisis mode um, during the pandemic and take care of, um, you know, how are we going to work? How are we going to get food? But the biggest thing I think uh, you highlighted is that you guys offered the ability of how do you process uh, trauma? Um, Essentially, to everybody, because that's what everybody was was dealing with, Um, and uh, and that is, you know, um, not that the other things are not as important, but of course, you know, that that I think um, helps people in you know numerous ways that we don't know, Um, and so this brings me to the point that I want to kind of highlight to everyone is that. Uh, how you offer your services out of homes. Um can you explain why why you chose to offer services out of homes instead of having um, you know, buildings that everybody meets at?
1: Yeah. Um I think it's a very unique model. Um I think it, you know, every time I meet somebody, they're really thrown aback, like I said, that it is an actual house. But again, it's going back to, you know, you, you said it a few a few minutes ago where there's been a lot of things tried in schools, there's been a lot of things tried just in general with children and families, you know, the last 30 years. But if we look at like when, you know, children were like actually flourishing, it's when we had that whole circle, when we had, you know, neighbors that knew one another, they knew your parents, your principal knew your parents, your teacher knew your parents, Um, and everything was, you you know, pretty close to your neighborhood. Um, and that's not to say that, like now that children, you know, are expanding out and they may be attending school or childcare and in, in some place that isn't their neighborhood, that that's bad because it's not bad. But how do we make sure that when you come back to that neighborhood that the things you need to be set up for success, you know, exist within that kind of you know five ten block radius that your parents can access tutoring for you that if you need food, you're able to access food and, and safety and conversations of other parents. Um, and I think so often when programs are created um, and even funding is allocated, what we see is, hey, this is where we're going to offer it. This is the time we're going to offer it. and And families are really asked to make that work. Um, and the concept here with the, the community-based hubs is, is really, you know, planning for, with, by the community. Like what, when and how are we going to offer that? Um, how will it be available, you know, to them in a way that's accessible? If, if all of our parents are working um and not available for a 10 a.m program we're not going to try to offer a 10 a.m program because of a grant we're really going to like say what is the family's need um so that again this idea that you're not putting the burden on the families I think so often there are things out there but um I have not yet visited a state or a county where a school administrator or, you know, a nonprofit ED has asked me, well, how do we tap into families? And the answer is just very simple. It's like, how do you meet people where they're at? How do you not burden them, you know, to find transportation when transportation may not be available? How do you, you know, not you know, create a program at a time that's just never going to work for working families. Um, and that's really the goal with the, the community hubs is is creating that, you know, almost old school sense of community that we used to have in each of our neighborhoods. So no matter where folks are going to school or no matter where, you know, their church may be, because those are even in different neighborhoods now, you know, that they can have this hub from the time that a, a child is born until they may, you know, start to interact more with their school community at the age of eight. Mm -hmm.
0: And so um, in creating these hubs, um, and one of the big things that you just brought up is that a lot of schools, and I've seen it um, even in my own personal experience, is that A lot of times, um, you know, things uh, uh, fall on the parents, especially, I would say, probably in mostly in elementary school, probably dissipates a little bit in junior high, give or take, you know, what your child is like. Um, So in your organization, what role do uh, parents uh, take or play in the organization? I'm
1: trying to think... um... I think I would even push back on role. I think it's like our organization is parents. Um, I think because we hire from within community, because we are often approached by community, there really isn't this distinction of like, this is the parent's role and this is like the staff's role. It really is a blend of like everything that... um, everybody um, really desires for children. And so I think most of our team, you know, are Detroit based um, staff members who've come from many of the neighborhoods. And so, you know, they are parents, but they're also staff members. Um, I think the same thing with our community advisory, many of them are grandparents who are raising grandchildren. And so you have a lot of dual roles. but I think that for us, it's really this like child family centric attitude of everybody who's really, you know, touching brilliant. Um, I think that was also what was attractive to me as an organization. I think you can attend meetings or participate in conversations, you know, where children are never mentioned what something could look or feel like or be experienced like for a child. Um. And I think in our organization, that is always the forefront of everything. How will a family experience this? Um, what what will they be burdened if we plan it this way? Um, and I think that, you know, it would be hard for somebody to come into the organization and be like, oh, those are the parents. This is the staff. Um, because it, it I think that everybody's focus and... Um, the way that we all kind of approach the work is it's really, you know, what does this look and feel like for our families? Whether you're a parent or not, but I, I think that there's no designated role, you know, for the families. And I think that one of the beautiful things that's also happened because of that is many of our participants who've started maybe as a mother who's pregnant and attending a baby shower, you know, that she can develop her skills and become a leader in the community and become an outreach staff member. And so I think that, you know, that's also in the now 6 years that we've existed in many of our neighborhoods, you you really see that that, you know, somebody who started as a participant, you know, has become somebody who's working within the staff either as a community advisor or as an actual staff member.
0: Wow. One of the things that, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of uh, there's a lot of heart in the organization. I guess um, how I guess how have you been able to create that? Like um, one of the, the barriers I think that um, happens in a lot of uh, like uh, organizations or school districts is this thing kind of um, of like, uh, you know, I do this, you do that. But you have described an organization where there's, uh, you know, that it's more of a we than, you know, an I and an us and things like that. It's, um, uh, I guess, how have you created that secret sauce? Like, how have <laughs> you brought people like, uh, how do you do that? Because I think that's one of the hardest things. And if we could do that, um, you know, everywhere, it would make a difference. in you know, a bunch of different things.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, a lot of that credit definitely goes again towards the founders and towards the board, because realizing that doing that is is well it's the magic it's also what's complex and hard in the work um, and what makes the work sometimes messy because we're not hiring often staff members who come in you know with the 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 skills of being in an office setting for 10 12 years and so email etiquette etiquette or you know protocol for like time cards and all those things those are not you know things that we as a staff definitely come in. You know having mastered, um, I, I met with somebody who's just amazing connecting with community two weeks ago, and I was trying to show her the ups and downs of social media, and she just looked at me and she was like, "This is not like this is not my jam." And uh, you know, <laughs> and we had to we had to pivot. We had to say, "You know what? It's not your jam." And like, what is the system and the process that we're going to build? um to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish because you know social media is all about messaging how do we get the message you know to the families we're trying to serve but that's not her medium so how do we do that in a way that's also respectful you know to the staff and to the dynamic you know superpowers that they have to connect to people one-on-one um and i and i totally credit that to the leadership of, you know, the organization, because it's constantly asking these questions of like, we need to tackle X, but that isn't necessarily the skill set of this staff member, or that's not what we want the focus of that team to be. And so like, how do we reach that goal Um, But really do it in a way that's, you know, human centered that you're not, you know, having someone come to work and do something they hate every day, but you're creating the environment where they are respected for those gifts and talents. Um, And I think also, you know, the team is really good about coming up with solutions. Um, You know, I think that, you know, we, we definitely during COVID have experienced a lot of barriers as a community, but like, how do we... How do we use those talents to to come up with solutions? And I think that the the heart of that is just like Brilliant itself is like how do you really respect like the the individual and that that person who is a mom who's a community member and like the skills they're bringing um, because that's why folks come to Brilliant. They don't come to Brilliant because we're really good at <laughs> Facebook ads. Um, and so I really I, I think everybody should own that, like that's hard um, doing that. I don't think there's something about it that's easy because, you know, um, we're not necessarily using traditional training manuals or you know, going about things in I think the most traditional way. Um, but what does happen, I think, for each staff member is is really a respect to the you know beautiful capacity and like talents that they bring.
0: I'm, I'm just, um, I have to say, I'm, I'm amazed because I haven't, there's very few organizations (laughs) that I, that I hear such, uh, you know, um, uh, I guess, such kind of oneness um, um, uh, with. And so I guess uh, I have to, I guess I have to ask, is there, um, has there been like a, a big barrier that you've had to overcome besides, of course, the pandemic?
1: I think the the barrier that we talk about the most is also that how do you maintain that magic as we continue to grow? So we started out with one two hubs. We will have twenty four by twenty twenty four, and I think that if my founder were here, you know, if Cindy was on the line with us, she would definitely say, you know, what we're consistently thinking about is how do we make sure that as we grow, that that. Key secret sauce of those relationships, and that every hub feels that way. That every Brilliant Detroit activity feels that way. If you approach us, and we're at a Girl Scout event, that the team is trained in such a way that, like, it feels like Brilliant Detroit. Um, you know, and and those things are important. Um, when I talk to other nonprofits, you know, I'm constantly asking questions, and they'll be like, "What do you mean? How does our team do outreach?" Um, and there is a feeling of Brilliant Detroit that we wanna make sure um, that each participant or stakeholder or community member who like interacts with us, that they walk away with that same feeling of like welcomeness and openness. Um, and I think that what we're trying to be really protective of is like, how do you make sure you are able to do that as you continue to grow? Because we know that the need now more than ever, um, still exists. And so we have, I think, at this point, seven neighborhoods on our waiting list. Um, we have two other, I think, cities in other parts of the country that would love to see Brilliant Detroit replicate. And even outside of the country, um, you know, our, our board and our leadership have been approached about replication. But I think what everybody is really protective of is how do you make sure that what you experience, that nurturing love, um, the way that everybody feels safe in that hub and the way that the staff and the participants are given room to grow um, continues to exist um, and I think feel the way that it did from our start in 2016, that it feels that same way and it's that same kind of overwhelming sense of, um, love that has existed from that start that, you know, how do we maintain that into 2024 as we, you know, expand, you know, I'd say double, triple from where we came from.
0: Yes. And, um, speaking of, uh, expansion and, um, I guess a need for, Uh, Brilliant Detroit in other areas, of course, may be called a a brilliant, uh, you know, a different name uh, than the the, uh, Detroit if it's in a different city. But um, uh, one of the things I know, I think I watched an interview um, uh, with your founder, um, uh, Cindy Eagleton, um, that uh, you had like an expansion uh, possibility or you were testing out Chicago um, as, uh, another one of the areas, um, that might need such, um, such a program. Um, and so in doing that, I guess, how from, a um, I'm asking, I guess, now practical, um, uh, questions because of course, every city is a little bit different. How are then, uh, how do you guys go around selecting, uh, properties for the organization?
1: So um, I think with that growth there's come the planning on the staff side that there's actually a, a whole dedicated um, staff and team members who are meeting monthly, I think more at this point more often than monthly um, to really discuss what that replication looks like. I think alongside a board member um, participating as well like what is that selection process look like and what are those criterias? And so, just really thoughtfully making that its own work stream um, as far as expansion, in addition to like our day to day operations, that there is a team of folks, you know, who really have a set of allocated hours and, and brain space to be able to think what that looks like. Um, because again, the fidelity of the model. Um, if it is to be replicated, our, our co-founders have been really clear that they want to make sure that it's the right city, they want to make sure that it's the right space and the right time, and then also that um, the stakeholders and the community members that are in that city, that it's something that they want um, and not something that's being sought by you know, a funder or um, an outside entity. Um, if that makes sense. But, you know, I think the same way we have our neighborhoods really approach us here. How do you have it be a neighborhood um, who's really seeking that brilliant Detroit model and not necessarily like one individual? So I think that's really at the heart of that, um, making sure that that exists, but then there's also all the other elements, um, that go into it. It, You know, what is the landscape as far as properties? How hard is it to get, you know, a blighted or vacant or foreclosed property in that particular city? Um, and there's definitely some cities (laughs) who have an interest where like, that's harder than it is in others. So like Chicago, it may be easier to do that than a Philadelphia or, you know, another city on the you know west side of the country. So I think there's a, a lot of thought that goes into it, and I think that um, our co-founders are also really committed to how do we how do we get to our 24, you know, before those replication decisions and and, and, and plans are really firmed up as well.
0: Hmm. And so, how can uh, people uh, help your organization?
1: um number one thing that we always tell people is just share 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 um so whether it's facebook or linkedin or you know instagram or even you know grabbing something from one of those places and and sharing the link to our website you know just letting more people know about us um you can now be a virtual tutor tutor to a child in Detroit, um, from anywhere, you log into Zoom after getting a background check, of course, and tutor. You know, in tutor training, um, but being a literacy mentor has never been easier because now that we have so many of our families that have the access, um, they can go to school during the day or attend their childcare program, and then if they feel like there's you know a readiness or a reading gap we can sign them up with a, a a virtual mentor and you know 30 to 40 minutes a day like we just see huge difference in kids it's that confidence level that you get from reading with a you know a buddy or a friend each afternoon you know really can just help our children take off um I think the stats are a little bit higher now, but I mean, generally, under 20% of our third graders in Detroit are reading on grade level. And for us, our North Star is really how do we change that? You know, by third grade, if you're not set up to be a reader who is on target and who's able to read and comprehend, we know you're going to struggle with math. We know you're going to struggle with you know, all those lessons that are going to come in middle school. And so how do we really, you know, get every child who wants to be matched up with their virtual reading mentor matched up? Um, but brilliantdetroit.org is our website, and all of our volunteer opportunities are on there. If somebody's in Detroit, and is curious about where our houses are located, all of our locations are also listed at brilliantdetroit.org. Fantastic. Um,
0: and I just have two more questions for you. Uh, so I don't know. Um, do you have a favorite story about the organization?
1: Um, my favorite story. Oh, my gosh, there's so many. Um, I think the thing that definitely comes to mind and like a recent why is um I had that real you know, kind of crazy privilege of helping with our annual event this year. Um, and it was the first time we had our funders, our volunteers, our board members, and our families come together as a group. <laughs> and it was one of those situations, you know, where I think all of us were like, everybody's just ready to have fun. Um, I think that as I've traveled throughout the country, it feels like um, other cities were able to move forward a lot faster um, than those hot spots where COVID just really hit the hardest. And so we knew families were ready for fun. Um, but we also knew it would be hard to get, you know, 400 plus people together in an environment that was both formal but, you know, family friendly. and. There was a point in the evening at like, I think it was like nine, nine something where this child was just up on this fancy statue dancing with a uh, silent disco headphones on their head um, and just turned to me and, you know, said, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. And I just thank you so much, um, <laughs> and, you know, after three really hard years and. Um, there are obviously lots of stories that are way more dramatic than that and probably, you know, more connected to academics and literacy, but it was just such a relief to us all that like children were able to be in a space with their moms, their dads, their grandpas, you know, in community and just be kids. Um, and I think that, you know, as we think about all the things that really need to happen in the next couple of years, I think we do have, readiness gaps and we do have you know things that need to be addressed with communities and our children as far as academics but we also need to recognize like we said that you know children and families really need love safety and when you have love and safety what we like to emphasize is then you can grow Um, but you can't grow if you don't have those two things for sure I like that story. Um, Yes, it's something uh,
0: something light after we've dealt with so many heavy things in these last few years. Um, And so my final uh, uh, question kind of, um, uh, well, I guess it's kind of like a question. It's a a statement that I want you to finish. Um, So here's the statement um, that I need you to finish. It takes a village.
1: It takes a village um, to create love and safety. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much
0: um, for uh, your insight and uh, sharing with us um, all about Brilliant Detroit and the changes that you are making. Um, So thank you, Ms. Montoya, for your time and insight. To learn more about Brilliant Detroit, go to brilliantdetroit.org. If you have a passion for an underserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work. To start your project of change today, we would like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work/slash-subscribe to get our episode and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus, get a ten percent discount on any project you start on projectgood.work. Thank you to our listeners, and thank you for tuning to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters.